Feeling better? Looking better. Making life better. It's Life Tips. Life We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Life Tips. Life tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Welcome your hosts, Byron White and Amanda Smith. Hey, everybody. We're on today with the Life Tips show. And joining us this week is going to be Andy Funk, who is absolutely a phenom in the business world. Andy has started several amazing companies and did all of it before the age of 24. I'm 27, and I haven't done anything of notable of notable cause. <laughs> so I'm looking to learn something new from Mr. Funk today. Also, we're going to be talking about Helping.org, which is one of the companies started by Andy. It's a really great website. I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, it's since been acquired by AOL. Good for Mr. Funk, um, it's a, a network for good where you can find any charity and donate and donate time, donate money, and it keeps all the records of everything you've given right online. So I would encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, it is networkforgood.org, and we're going to go to commercial break, and we will be right back. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Looking for a new way to build backlinks and traffic back to your website? Then look no further than the quickest and easiest way to blast your article to over 30,000 subscribers at the click of a mouse. Introducing ArticleSender.com, the world's premier article distribution service. With ArticleSender.com, you can submit your prize-winning piece to thousands of promising publishers and article directories craving for fresh content. ArticleSender.com also provides premium services so that your article is SEO, SEO ready. Plus, we provide express editing editorial review for rush delivery of your submissions within 24 to 48 hours. Article distribution at its easiest. One form, one click, thousands of results. Get your free account today at articlesender.com. That's article, S-E-N-D-E-R.com. Okay, so you're telling me that if I put the Go Currency Converter on my site, all my international customers can see how much they're paying in their own currency? Yeah. GoCurrency.com has free currency converters, language translations, international clocks, everything you need to do international business. So how does it work? Conversion elves. Conversion elves? Yeah, watch. Want to know what this will cost in euros? Check this out. Listen up, elves. We got one. $34 US. I need that in euros. Now, people. We got it. Put it up there, elves. Wow. Currency elves. Who knew? GoCurrency.com. Free currency converters, language translations, and more. GoCurrency.com. Hey, what are you reading? Revenue Magazine. It keeps me up to date on everything in performance marketing. Yeah, I get all my information online. <laughs> I don't see a computer next to your boogie board there. Well, I've got a regular magazine here. <laughs> Revenue Magazine is the only hard copy magazine that covers affiliate marketing techniques, search technologies, online fraud prevention, and interactive advertising, branding, and marketing. My magazine's got pictures. Revenue Magazine has everything for online marketers, affiliates, merchants, agencies, and networks. And you can read previous issues, blogs, and more at RevenueToday.com. Uh, Mine's got a centerfold. Revenue Magazine, the performance marketing standard. For more information, go to revenuetoday.com. Get hooked, wrapped, and dished. All week long on webmasterradio.fm. Your destination for education and entertainment. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. And now back to Life Tips. 
making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Hey, everybody. So we are back today, and we are talking to Andy Funk. Andy, are you with us? I sure am. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Byron's going to join us shortly. Um, But I wanted to talk a little bit more about Funk Ventures and how you got involved in the business world at such a young age. Give me a little intro about yourself. Oh, boy. Uh, That's uh, (laughs) a long time ago for me, at least. Uh, At least it feels like a long time. But uh, uh, I guess the short version would be that uh, um, I come from Europe, and my family in Europe has been running an insurance brokerage firm for quite a bit of uh, time, about 130 years now. And... uh, Ultimately, as the eldest son, it was my destiny to take over that company. And as I grew up, I realized I had no interest in that. And uh, at age 18, decided that I was going to buy myself a one-way ticket to America to start my own first company. So that's what I did, and I guess that was really the beginning of uh, of uh, the last 13 years for me in business. And uh, that's how I got started. Wow, that's incredible! And you, you are. Amazing. I was reading your bio. It's it's really incredible. You uh, <laughs> helped pioneer three industries and sold them before the age of 24. Help me get my facts straight on this. Yeah, basically, I, I came over to to the states. Uh, I was you know barely 19 years old, and uh, you know my family uh, wasn't very supportive of me leaving the country. So uh, I basically was out on my own and uh, started my first company with a credit card which back then seemed like a great idea, but now I know that wasn't all that smart because I basically ended up uh, almost a quarter million dollars in debt by the time I was 20. um, But um, I really had uh, this tremendous desire to to build companies and, uh, you know, do my part in changing the world, even if it's a very small part. And uh, so I just kept on going, even though I really should have been homeless. And uh, somehow it all worked out. Uh, The business has all turned uh, fairly successful. And... uh, by the time I was 24, I had sold uh, three companies. And at that point, I realized I was probably pretty good at doing this, and uh, I should continue doing it, but maybe in a more effective manner. And that's when I started uh, a venture capital firm uh, called Funk Ventures. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the last eight, nine years now. Andy, can you hear me at all, Mandy? We're on oh. with Byron. Yay. Great. Andy, it's a pleasure to meet you and, and, and chat with you today. Thanks for being on the show. You bet. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what's hot out there in the VC space and what kind of investment opportunities you look for, which, by the way, may flood you with phone calls from from the webmaster community here that's <laughs> listening in. Well, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, time to ask me that question, of course. I mean, uh, the, uh, the VC community uh, as a whole is definitely going to experience some uh, form of slowdown here, given that uh, we're not living in, in the best times right now. But... Uh, um, Funk Ventures has always been interested in in one thing and really one thing only, and that is to invest in companies that really have the uh, an ability to give back to society or to just people in general or to the environment. And for us, that really means uh, that we invest in three different uh, buckets. And uh, one of the buckets is medical technologies. The second bucket is health and wellness, and the uh, third is clean tech. And clean tech, obviously, meaning alternative energy all the way down to sustainability and enabling sciences and so forth. So those are the things that we've always been interested in. And obviously, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, when the firm was getting just started and uh, just got off the ground, uh, investing in, in green technologies and clean tech was not entirely sexy, to uh, you know, to be honest with you. And now, over the last three, four years, that has really uh, changed quite a bit. So. 
uh, we're certainly riding an interesting wave right now. What kind of well, tell me a little bit about the, the the profile of the companies you look to invest in. What what size uh, are they typically, and, uh, and and what kind of uh, plan do you like with regards to an exit strategy for those companies? Well, we we definitely are early stage investors. We're not shy to invest very early on in the company's lifespan. In fact, uh, next to our venture capital uh, division, we also have a division uh, which is basically a business accelerator, and often we take on companies into that accelerator that are even uh, pre-VC stage uh, level, meaning often seed stage or, you know, barely having a business plan, not making any money, and maybe you have a founder with an idea or so. So um, we're pretty aggressive in that regard. Um, Series A and Series B are definitely our sweet spot on the VC side. And um, as far as exits are concerned, I mean, you know, Everyone always talks about IPOs. IPOs make up for 20% of all you know, exits for venture-backed companies. So it's not typically the norm to, to go public. And in this market, it certainly won't be for at least a few more years. And uh, so as far as exits are concerned, you know, often you're looking for a merger or acquisition, and that's usually the best way to uh, liquidate out of a company. You've started companies and sold companies. Do, do you? Yes. Do you? You're now on a different seat, which is, uh, you know, uh, investing in companies. What threads have pulled it together for you with regards to looking at a really good opportunity? What do you look for? What is a good opportunity for you? And is it the idea? Is it the structure? Is the management? Is it the vision? Is it the execution? What's what's hot for your particular VC firm in, in what you look for? Well, I think that's the $64 million question, ultimately, what, what makes a good business. And it changes from industry to industry, but ultimately you're looking at uh, a, a core set of things that, uh, that make a really strong company. And the uh, uh, most important one is the management team. The people who, who found the company and ultimately the people who come on board to run the company are, are more important than anything I could ever think of in, in making investments. So that's one you know, factor that we really look out for. Um, the company must have the ability to attract capital because if you're sitting on a really great invention but you can never raise a dime, then it's very difficult to uh, to get going. So there's got to be you know some component that makes us believe that this business can raise more cash in the future. Um, obviously, companies got to have healthy margins. If you have a fantastic idea that can cure cancer but you can never commercialize it because you're losing money, then it'll never get to the marketplace. And trust me, I've seen dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of companies like that that really have phenomenal um, ideas and concepts and never get off the ground because they just can't find a way to make money. Um, there's got to be good scalability, which is really important. If you can't scale a company quickly, if it takes you 30 years to, you know, to get from zero to $10 million in revenue, then you're not going to be attracting any good investment dollars. And that goes back to the second point I made. So scalability is extremely important. And one point you already hit on, which is the exit. If there is no opportunity for an exit, then raising venture capital is typically a very difficult thing. So uh, we always need to have an opportunity to exit the business at one point. And for us, that's typically a three, four, five, sometimes even six or seven year lifespan and uh, since we invest so early and um, exit is extremely important. Andy, you guys have a, a major interest in green companies uh, for investment yeah. purposes, but are, do you have interest in non-green industries as well? 
Yeah, definitely. So that goes back to the socially responsible investment philosophy that we really have. Um, the, the medical technology and health and wellness side is one that we really like as well. And because it really allows us to, to it allows the companies to give back uh, to society, um, whether it's organic food or a medical technology that allows you to rehabilitate, uh, rehabilitate uh, quicker after a sports injury, for instance, those are all things that we like as long as you know, someone can benefit from what we're doing. But um, like I said, the green space is extremely sexy at this point, so it is certainly something that uh, we're looking at heavily. I'd say generally 40% of our deal flow is in the clean tech area, and the remaining 60% is divided between you know, health and wellness and medical technologies. How do you how do you think the current economic downturn is going to affect um, green investing? Well, um, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I would say that the the clean tech sector, the green sector per se, is really um, the bailout package that we've been waiting for. I think the uh, ability for the sector to create millions of jobs is is absolutely uh, phenomenal, and I, I sure am hoping and praying that it's going to turn out that way. So, you know, having said that, uh, I do believe that it's going to get more difficult for green companies to get off the ground. And I say that specifically because there's so many great concepts in, in this space and so many great technologies and ideas, but in order to get them off the ground, like I said before, you need capital. And capital is going to dry up, and um, specifically small capital is going to dry up because Series A investing is very risky. What we do, you know, takes at, at least a little bit of courage sometimes because you really don't know how these companies are going to pan out four, five, six years before you actually get to an exit. So um, a lot of the investors out there, a lot of the VC firms and private equity firms that sit on a lot of cash, you know, half a billion or a billion dollars in size or maybe, maybe even more, um, what they're going to do is they're going to invest primarily in infrastructure. And that's great because this country has significant infrastructure needs, but at the same time, it uh, basically, uh, you know, bypasses the sustainability and the enabling sciences and materials field, which I really think is important for clean tech as well. So I think there's going to be a lot of companies uh, that have an ability to make a change, but um, um, probably they won't get financed. And how long that's really going to cause uh, or how long – um, we're going to be um, experiencing a slowdown because of that. I don't know. It could be a few years. Just as a follow-up to that question, so that wasn't a very pretty picture that you painted there with with the future of, of, of green investing, if I may say so myself. <laughs> right. And, and perhaps a real perspective, but correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, when you start to see traction, you know, with interest levels of solar, you know, renewable energy, um, you know, wind power, when you start to see excitement for that, you know, with particularly within the U.S. base of, of consumers, doesn't that fuel excitement from an investment perspective? Doesn't that, you know, encourage more experimentation? And most importantly, aren't isn't the ability to get to market very fast hasn't that improved significantly look at some of the electric car manufacturers that are that are blossoming blossoming in the united states um you know aren't we getting smarter and better and faster and wiser with identifying opportunity 
and fine-tuning the management skill required to bring that opportunity to market and the speed within the manufacturing business as a whole to bring products to market. Isn't it a great time to be starting a business and to even self-fund it or bring it to fruition, prove the business model out, and, 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 and therefore entice investment opportunity you know, much, much more so and much better than we, than we could some time ago? Yes, no, maybe, and my way off. No, I, I think you're dead on, I, and I think it's great that you brought this up. Uh, if you have enough money to, to build a company and ride out the storm for the next two, three years, I think you're going to be golden. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but it's, it's so much more complicated than that for, for many companies because most entrepreneurs don't have the ability to not take a salary and to just uh, sit on, on, on their company for two or three years before things really take off. And um, that can make things really difficult. But you're definitely correct. It's, it, it's a fantastic time as far as consumer awareness is concerned. Everyone seems to be getting it, and the people who are not getting it quite yet are going to get it pretty soon. So from that perspective, I, I think the time can be better. It is about as sexy as it could be to get into this market right now. But from an investment perspective, if you do need that money, then you, know, you have to look at how many funds are out there right now in this country investing in green. There's quite a few, and a lot of them have started up in the last two years. But uh, 90% of them probably invest in, in infrastructure. So if you are in wind, if you are in solar, if you are in these kind of businesses where you need 50 or 100 or $150 million investments to get off the ground, then, yeah, I think capital is going to be available. If you have a little idea for a sustainable company or something like that, then I think it'll be much more difficult. You know, what you're looking at right now is venture capital funds have their own investors often, and they're called limited partners, and you have one of the highest defaulting rates right now. That means that when the VC firm is asking their investors for money, a lot of them don't pony up the cash anymore. So it's definitely difficult times in that regard, and that's going to make these investments slow down, whether we like it or not, and that is certainly independent of whether the market is growing quickly. If the market really, really accelerates in the next two years, you'll find a lot of people that will try to raise more money or start new firms focused specifically on green. And the one issue I see with that is that it may not be possible to raise that money because usually you have large pension funds or um, you know, endowments and so forth make uh, investments in venture capital funds. And a lot of these guys are getting hit extremely hard right now because a lot of their asset allocations are typically in the public markets. And if Wall Street can, you know, continues to do what it's been doing, then they may simply not have the luxury to invest a lot of capital into new funds, and therefore you'll have much you know, lesser availability to, for the entrepreneur as far as capital is concerned. Tell me a little bit about the M&A business in this industry, um, in this economy, rather, and, and what, what transpires and what you would expect to transpire in the next six months or so. The next six months, um, hmm, that's, that's a more short acquisitions, time more consolidation. You know, and it, let's extend ourselves beyond the, the banking industry, which we're all tired of hearing right now. Right. <laughs> you know, small companies. You know, is it a great time to be a small company and to potentially be acquired, particularly if you're cash positive? Is it going to get tough? Are, are, are acquisitions going to be deferred and delayed until people are squeezed a little bit more to see what the shakedown is all about? What's going on in the M&A space? I think you just answered the question, really. Uh, like I said before, the IPO market is dead, and it's probably going to be that way for 
two, three, four, maybe even five years. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to acquisitions and mergers, um, if your end game was to get acquired by a Fortune, you know, 500 or 1,000, those are the guys again that are getting hit pretty hard right now. So. Um, everyone that was highly leveraged will simply not be, you know, be able to pony up the cash to buy your company if you're looking for a home run exit. If you're the kind of entrepreneur that sits on a great idea and, you know, has and maybe received a million or two million dollars in investment and uh, you wouldn't mind selling the company for five ten, or maybe ten million dollars, then I think there are enough companies out there that are still sitting on cash that can take advantage of, of uh, the current uh, downturn and then uh, basically acquire really, really healthy companies or really great companies with uh, potential great futures and uh, acquire them for a lot less than uh, that would have been the case, you know, just about a year ago. Tell, tell, tell the listeners a little, bit, a little bit about some of the best pitches you've heard. You know, we, we've heard from Guy Kawasaki that speaks fairly frequently at some of the search marketing conferences that, that, this, that our crowd listens to. You know, your pitch needs to be 10 PowerPoint slides, and that's it, you know. <laughs> or 10, or I, love, I love it when he says you need 10 primary points and you need to tell your audience, you know, what those 10 points are. So if your whole business plan sucks, they'll know you're coming to the end when you get to number 10, you know. <laughs> so right. do you have any tips? Tell us about some pitches you've heard and, and what, what you see really working out there with regards to raising money and, and how to do it. Well, he does have a point, you know. It's... Uh, we all suffer, and by we, I mean most venture capitalists suffer from some form of ADD, and I think that's why ultimately I decided that I was going to be well off in an industry where I would be involved in multiple companies at the same time. But um, with regards to pitches, my, my personal approach may be a little bit different than what most other VCs out there are doing. I really like to meet people, and um, I am I'm a person that typically goes uh, with his gut, so if I meet someone... And even if I like your pitch, uh, if I don't like you or I don't think that I can work with you for the next four or five, six years, that can make it really easy on you and on me, and I can say this is not going to work out and thanks for coming by. But for those guys that, um, that <clears throat> typically uh, we enjoy meeting and, you know, we, we get about 100, 150 business plans per month, so we have to be very selective as to who we ask for a meeting. Um, but the people that do come by, I mean, um, the, the shorter the better, typically, because really we just want to get to a point where we can internally figure out whether this is something that could really make sense. And often it's not always all about the business. I mean, we have internal asset allocation. We may have existing portfolio companies already that could be in conflict with your opportunities. So uh, a lot more goes into you know making a decision uh, than just saying you have a great business. So if you keep it short, I can tell you fairly quickly, this may be something we want to look at in the future. And uh, in that case, we can dig a lot deeper afterwards. So I I, I do agree with them. Ten slides would be great. I mean, obviously, most of the pitches that we see are are a little longer than that. But uh, a PowerPoint, definitely a business plan, absolutely no way. Uh, I simply won't have the time and neither won't have, you know, our associates or our analysts uh, won't have the time to really uh, sift through a business plan at that early of a stage. Hmm. How much, how much in competitive intelligence are you doing with, uh, with, with prospect uh, companies that you may want to invest in? Um, 
are you leaving it to their business plan to do intelligence, or do you have a phased approach in analyzing an investment? Tell us a little bit about the process. We definitely have a phased approach. Uh, We spend a lot of time and money developing a proprietary deal system over the last uh, many years. And what basically happens is a deal will come in and it'll get uploaded to our system. And then there's a bunch of criteria that, a bunch of data that we have to fill in. Um, uh, And if we don't have that data, then we'll try to get that data. And that initial assessment results in basically a grade that tells us this is definitely something that we don't want to look at, it's something that we may want to look at, uh, or this is absolutely something that we must look at. And it really falls into these uh, three buckets. And uh, the, the first bucket gets declined right away, so we don't even spend any more time on that. The second bucket, we try to gather more data and see whether we're simply missing a lot of information that would make us ultimately decide that this is a great opportunity. And the third bucket, obviously we want to get in touch with the management team and given that we now like the opportunity after just a very short look, we would want to meet the people and see uh, whether you know we like the people. And so the third bucket is the most exciting one because we instantly feel uh, you know attached to the business and then it just comes down to whether we like the people. If we do like the people after an initial meeting, we start digging pretty deep and we definitely will look at uh, the market, you know, analyze it, we'll look at the uh, competition and we'll look at our portfolio and see how synergistic this company may be with the rest of our portfolio. You talked a lot about like go ahead, yeah, go ahead. No, just a quick question. Do you ever have um have you seen an uprise in businesses who are posing as green but that you think maybe aren't 100% on board with the green idea? Any problems with greenwashing coming through your door? Yes, <laughs> certainly. Um, a lot of it, uh, to be honest. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's an interesting discussion, I think. Um, you have a lot of people who are really on board with the green mission, and then when it really comes down to it, uh, they just want to raise money and get their business off the ground. And you have a lot of people as well who may not even really know that they're sitting on an opportunity that could really make a difference in the world. And after we meet with them, we maybe wake them up a little bit to the fact they have a real opportunity here uh, to make a difference. And uh, sometimes those, let's call them ordinary people, who were not as you know attached to the green movement, um, become real advocates of it. So we've seen both. But as far as greenwashing is concerned, I mean, you see it all over the place, of course. And um, it's, it's a little sad, but um, we have software companies come to us all the time telling us that they're green because they're going to reduce paper. And, of course, you can make that claim, but if you do make that claim, then you can pretty much make that claim about almost anything, unless you're really polluting. And that goes back to negative screening. If you only screen for things that are bad, like tobacco, oil, and all that stuff, then... Um, yeah, maybe you still have a good conscience, but you're really not addressing the real needs that we have on this planet right now. So I consider the green movement one where you have a company that has a real um, edge and real advantage and really focuses on this market and doesn't just do it indirectly. Besides sending business plans and creating business plans, uh, and, and sending them to uh, VC firms and angel investment organizations and or individuals, what are creative ways that entrepreneurs can meet people that could fund them? And let's not be too general and say either VCs or angels, right? So what are, what are, right. What are creative hangouts for, for getting money, raising money? Well, you know, um, everyone's different. Some VCs, um, 
If you don't know them personally, there's absolutely no way that you'll ever talk to them. And even if you met them uh, on the street or in the local market, they're not going to talk to you. I mean, this is I, I, without upsetting you know my colleagues out there, but it, it's sometimes not the most beautiful industry to be in. Um, you know, there's a lot of ego involved, and um, I would like to say that we're not that way. But you know, everyone can have their own opinion. Ultimately, um, VCs are getting much more you know. Um, sophisticated about social networking, so there's a lot of people out there that have Facebook pages now and Twitter accounts and, and the like, and I've seen a lot of them be fairly open about talking to other people now, uh, specifically entrepreneurs, to maybe even increase their own deal flow. So that's one very creative way. Um, of course, you can go to conferences. Um, I don't know how many conferences uh, we're going to over the next two months, probably four or five. I speak at a few of them, and um, I typically always hang out for you know, the remainder of the day, and I'm always glad to meet people. Um, but I don't have the bandwidth personally to get pitched 30 different times a day and, uh, and then get back to you. So ultimately, it does end up uh, where you will have to send a business plan or a PowerPoint to the firm and uh, route it through the typical channel, let's say it that way. Mandy, any other questions? I have about no. 40 to 70 more, but we don't have time for them right now. <laughs> we'll just keep going for the next few hours. You know what? I think that that answered all my green questions for today. You talked a lot in your presentation. I'll leave you with this final uh, question, um, and the listeners as well. You talked a lot about liking people. That was an important part of your criterion. Could you, yeah. could you give me some examples of what you find likable in people? That's a tough question. Um, Do you enjoy a good interpretive dance from time to time? Because <laughs> I am a killer at interpretive dances. <laughs> well, you know, liking comes down to two things. Obviously, we have to believe that this person and um, the team that this person is bringing to the table has to be able to perform. So it's, it's like saying you got to like the president and hope that you know, that person is going to put uh, together a team that you can trust running the country. So, but ultimately, it's the, the chief executive that uh, we really have to have a good relationship with because it's like entering into a marriage. You know, you, you have a four, five, six, seven-year relationship, and during that time, you're going to go through ups and downs. And the most difficult thing is figuring out how that person is going to respond when things aren't so pretty. So... It really takes time to get to know a person, and obviously that goes down to, you know, you can segment that into 50 different uh, uh, buckets as far as uh, character, per, you know, personality is concerned and so forth. But for me, it's typically just how I feel about that individual in the first few minutes, and whether they're really trying to impress me, that doesn't go very far, or whether they're humble. Yesterday I saw Warren Buffett speak here in Los Angeles, and uh you know, one thing I like about Warren Buffett is how humble this guy is. He just walked out with everyone else, you know, went up the escalator and uh, out the door. And that's certainly a guy that could have a much bigger ego than he does. So that's something I would like about him if he came to pitch us for an investment, which obviously he's not going to. So, um, you know, you got to be humble about your abilities, and at the same time, you got to be confident enough and got to have enough experience to convince us very quickly that you're the guy to make this all happen. Huh. It, it, okay, one final question, I promise. So, the, yeah. 
you know, is, 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 and there are, again, there are a lot of small business owners and, and people listening into the show on webmasterradio.fm and on behalf of them and even myself. So when I, when I, when I, when I get approached by venture capitalists at, at the shows, which, which I, we always do, typically five to ten for every show we do, um, we, I ask one simple question to help them and to help myself quickly get beyond, you know, uh, dreaming of raising money. And that is, you know, minimum, uh, minimum uh, income, minimum revenue that a VC firm typically looks for. My general rule is always, you know, five million in sales or up is typically the minimum size that that a VC firm would be interested in. Do you agree with that philosophy? Am I overgeneralizing there? You know, are, are VCs tending to look for established businesses that are generating revenue with a management team in place, with, with 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 a proven track record? You know, is that the right time to step a VC into the game? You know, for a Series A, Series B funding opportunity. Well. I have a little um, little bit of a different opinion on that one, but that's probably because we're early-stage investors. There's a lot of firms out there who would like to invest 30 or $40 million into your company, and if you only generate $5 million in revenue, <clears throat> maybe your valuation at the most can be 30 or $40 million. So if you take on a large investment like that with that kind of valuation, you're giving, you know, still giving up 50% of your company. So um, on the other hand, if you're a smaller VC and you fund Series A's and you shell out half a million to maybe five million per deal, then you can't really have that high of a valuation because it uh, it will make it more difficult for the venture firm to to really make a good return on on its investment. So for us, we typically invest a quarter million to five million per deal, and that can really go up and down all the way in between. And uh, we will look at deals even if they don't make money. But that's pretty rare. You really have to be a Series A investor who's comfortable with this space, and there's not too many out here. There's a lot more in Silicon Valley, of course, but uh, even those have typically tended to invest uh, at a later stage because all these funds have raised so much money. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I think $5 million is awfully high. If you do make money, that is always a plus. If you bring in half a million to a million in revenue, I think that's a good start. I don't think a million to five million is uh, it, it would make me feel any more confident per se. So if you come to me and say I, I'm, I'm, the company's making two million or four point five million, I'm really not going to be swayed either way. If you come to me and say I'm making one million, and then the other company comes to me and says I'm I'm making fifteen or twenty million, that's a big enough difference to where um, I would care. But, um, yeah, I think $5 million is, is a little high. I want to leave you with an opportunity uh, to make the VC the, the, uh, the hero for saving America. You ready? <laughs> sure. Okay. So, you know, we know that the U.S. economy is, is very much built on an entrepreneurial spirit, an entrepreneurial, I mean, the, the, the American dream, start your own business and, and do your own thing. Um, we've seen a disconnect with, with angel investors, VCs, banks, in helping entrepreneurs fund their businesses. But I'd love to see a hot trend, and maybe this exists already, of, of, of investors, let's just not call them angels or VCs or, or, or whatever they are, and with, with, with a very interesting exit strategy for an entrepreneur. And, and the, the strategy would be, look, I believe in your company, but 
we needed to find exit strategy to sell your business within a year or two. So you take a business, you know, with a million, a couple million in revenue, maybe a half a million in revenue, but you say to the invest, you know, say to the entrepreneur, we, I want to put money into you, but the goal is to put money into you and to show you how your business could become part of another business that would buy you very quickly. Mm-hmm. Isn't that an interesting opportunity? Wouldn't you know if, if VCs could help fund those opportunities and and move deals around and move money around to support and sustain a new type of of of, of you know of environment where you could fulfill your dream of starting a company, but the end goal would be a quick goal to work, you know, one to five years to make it be part of another company. And you'd actually build your business to become part of a bigger company. I think there are some people out there doing that. And um, <clears throat> I'm, I have no problem with the approach. I think it makes sense. The downside is that uh, most, you know, people out there, most entrepreneurs want to make a fortune They've looked at the last, you know, five, ten years and, you know, see simple websites <laughs> make people rich to the hundreds of millions. So um, often people have unrealistic expectations. Like I said early on in the show, if, you, if, if, if you're raising a million dollars for your company and you're happy selling it for five or ten million dollars, then that's great. You know, the only thing you'll have to be aware of is that uh, the VC will be aware of that exit strategy and of that general approach. And because of it, Will probably demand a stake in the company that's high enough to to justify that kind of approach because mm-hmm. most VCs have to make and meet their own uh, internal you know return numbers and um, if they can't then they're going to have a more difficult time raising money in the future. So often I find that VCs do what pleases their investors and not necessarily always what may be the best strategy to begin with and that's a fundamental problem with the industry. Mm-hmm. And what kind of return on the investment do you look for yourself individually or for your investors, which may not be the same, by the way? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely different. Uh, the, the great thing is that we've been very flexible in the past and have an interesting structure internally that's allowed us to deploy our own capital as well as outside capital collectively. And um, generally, when we make an investment in the company, a home run is considered a 10x investment. So if you put in a million, you got 10 million out within five years, that's a really, really good investment. And, um, you know, after, after your fees and after your expenses, you know, since five years will cost you money, if you end up or your investors end up with um, 20 to 30% return generally per year annualized, then um, I think you have a winning recipe for success. So outbeating the markets and being above 20% is a very good thing. Well, Andy Funk, really appreciate you being on the on the show today and sharing your, your insights and your time with us. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Indeed. Well, hopefully we're a little smarter, wiser with the result of all of this. I, I don't know, Mandy, if, if, if it's a good time to be out raising, I don't know, 10 to $50 million. What do you think? Uh, maybe maybe not today. Maybe next week. <laughs> maybe things maybe things are on the up and up very quickly. Well, listen. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Hope you hope you uh, you enjoy the show today, and your life is a little bit smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Thanks to Andy Funk. We'll see you next week, everybody, with a great show. Thanks. 